A year ago tonight, someone cut the telephone wires leading from this pole, then climbed this fence and killed Sharon Tate and four other people. Now there is barbed wire atop the fence that wasn't there then. The new tenants have a dangerous dog. Since the house can't be seen from the road, the neighborhood is quiet. It does not attract morbid sightseers. Instead, people who are curious about the Tate murders go to the Los Angeles Hall of Justice, where they wait in long lines for the chance to witness the trial of Charles Manson and the three girls accused of the five killings. Some people are so interested that they get to the courthouse at 4 a.m., six hours before the court convenes each day. Most of them are young. Some travel hundreds of miles, and many of them come here because they want to see for themselves what Charles Manson and his girl followers are really like. One by one, the spectators are allowed into the courtroom until the 15 seats allotted to the public are filled. Once in the courtroom, the spectators must not chew gum. They must sit in their assigned seats. Even when newsmen and others in the court leave during a recess, the spectators must sit there or lose their place. The interest in this trial has been created by the 60 reporters who cover it. Each recess, they rush from their assigned seats in the courtroom to their newly installed telephones across the hall to tell the world the latest happening. Lawyers who had never been heard of before are now heard of because of this trial. Because of his television exposure, defense attorney Paul Fitzgerald is now asked in restaurants for his autograph. Something else this trial has done is gather together again those members of Manson's family who are not in jail. They congregate in the courthouse almost daily. They dance through the hallways telling all who will listen that the defendants are innocent, and that when the trial is over, they'll all go back to the desert and live off the land. The world is getting crazy. Don Oliver, NBC News, Los Angeles. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of August 69. William McBride had just returned home from Vietnam when he was called upon to serve on the trial of the century. At 24 years of age, he was the youngest member of the jury who had determined the fate of Charles Manson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten, four defendants who were charged with the brutal slayings of August 8th and 9th the year prior. The trial opened on June 16th, 1970, and for the remainder of that year, and on into the next, McBride and his fellow jurors were sequestered at the Ambassador Hotel, the site of Senator Robert Kennedy's assassination just two years earlier. The jury found each defendant guilty and sentenced them to the death penalty, a sentence that would be reduced to life imprisonment the following year. In this exclusive interview, Mr. McBride discusses the circus-like atmosphere in and around the courtroom during that tumultuous period of time. He also discusses the debate during deliberations over the fate of one particular Manson family member, and his thoughts today on whether any of the surviving killers should be set free. To be honest with you, I had just come home from Vietnam uh, mm. not long before these uh, murders happened, and I was working a job where I had rotating shifts, so uh, it was difficult to pay much attention to the news, so I didn't have much experience uh, learning about it before 
it happened or really after it happened. And I suppose that had something to do with being chosen as a juror because I had gotten callery duty in Los Angeles, and in Los Angeles it's a 30-day stint. And I had been on a couple of other shorter trials and I think a coroner's inquest, and then my time was getting close to being up. My name was drawn with a group of people. Actually, mine was the first out of the hopper of prospective jurors, and we were told to follow a group of deputies, which was a little bit unusual, and get on a, uh, a sheriff's department prisoner bus and we went over to the Hall of Justice, not knowing what was happening, went down through the basement of the Hall of Justice in L.A. and passed the coroner's office into a freight elevator and entered the courtroom from the rear entrance. And, uh, and my God, it was full of people. You had really no idea what you were getting yourself into, <laughs> it sounds like. Not at that early point, no. And... Um, they began a process of selecting a jury, which took almost six weeks. And I, uh, at that time, I was pretty young and always thought because of the length of my hair and my age that I would be, I would be dismissed. I'd be the next one to be dis dismissed. But it didn't happen that way, and I ended up on the jury. Right, so, do you do you attribute your your selection to you just not really being that aware of that crime? I just was not following the news, and I had heard about a group of hippies being arrested for some murders, and that's about all I knew. Little did I know how much I was going to learn about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. But this, were you guys sequestered during this whole 10-month uh, trial, I think it was? Yes, we were sequestered after jury selection in the Ambassador Hotel on Wilshire Boulevard. I mean, that, that much time sequestered away from your daily life, that, that had to have been very uh, impactful to you. It was, uh, it was different, yeah. It was almost a, almost a year, and for me, I was single, so it was probably a lot easier on me than it was on some of the older folks at the time and people that were married and maybe had kids at home, you know. Yeah, it just became a way of life for quite some time. Was it difficult to uh, keep out um, outside perspectives from people like family and, and friends when you when you saw them? Oh, no. No, that, that was not difficult at all because we were instructed by the judge every single day, every time we took a break, not to discuss the case with anyone and not to form or express any opinions. And any visitors that we uh, had at the hotel had to uh, sign uh, a form under oath saying they would not discuss any news accounts or anything about the case at all. And yeah. everybody, visitors and uh, amongst ourselves, we, we honored that important part of our our job yeah. and when when you're sequestered with your fellow jurors for such a long time and you guys have this shared experience 
mm-hmm. did you feel like you developed a, a bond with them over time? Yeah, I mean, in a way, we were we were a little family, and um, there were certain people that I had more in common with I'm with than others. But uh, over the course of the trial, I mean, I got to know them all, and and uh, you know, we had our meals together and spent a lot of time together. What to you were the most memorable uh, moments from the trial that stick in your mind the most? Oh, gosh. Um, a couple stand out. I suppose one of the most dramatic was a day that Charles Manson tried to kill the judge in the open court. And he... Uh, was agitated about something and he jumped up on the uh, council table and to his left between he and the judge's bench was the clerk's desk and uh, he took one step onto the clerk's desk and he had this brand new freshly sharpened number two yellow pencil (laughs) uh, raised in his hand like a knife and he uh, lunged at the bench, the judge's bench, and tried to stab him. And the bailiff, one of the bailiffs that spent uh, almost 24-7 with us, made a flying mid-air tackle of Mr. Manson. Plain clothes, cops came out of the audience, people that I didn't even know were cops, and they subdued him right on the floor in front of the judge's bench. And the judge calmly leaned over and said, let the record reflect that Mr. Manson has made a lunge at the bench and is now being subdued by a number of officers. Uh, that was pretty dramatic. <laughs> yeah, that, that I would say that qualifies, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty weird. Uh, another whole- instance was one day when uh, Charles Manson held up a copy of the Los Angeles Times, I think it was, and the headline said, Manson guilty Nixon declares. And he held that up for the jury to see. And I saw it clearly, and a number of other jurors did. A few didn't see it at all because the bailiff grabbed it out of his hands quickly. But that prompted all of us jurors having to leave the courtroom and be brought in one at a time and placed under oath on the witness stand to testify about what we what we saw and and what we thought about it and whether we could still continue to judge the case impartially. And so that took some time and I mean we we see the scenes outside of the courtroom with all of the followers outside and they're chanting and sitting in semicircles and the, the, it was such a huge media circus outside. Mm-hmm. But I would, I would have to think there was a, there had to have been a real surreal quality inside the courtroom too. I mean, it, it, it was just such an unusual case. Yeah, it, it was rather surreal because the courtroom was so packed with uh, reporters and others and the front row was reserved for sketch artists and they were all busy with their pads and and drawing you know sketches and 
And uh, it's fascinating on the one hand, yeah, kind of bizarre and surreal on the other. And, uh, but after a certain period of time, we sort of got used to the uh, surroundings in the courtroom and just were able to pay attention to what was happening. And, and what testimonies were, were most uh, compelling f- for you in that process? Oh, there were so many witnesses, but the obvious one that stands out is the prosecution star witness, uh, Linda Kasabian, who was uh, along for the ride on both nights. She was at the scene of both murders, but um, she didn't go into the Tate house. She was told to uh, stand outside by the car and act as kind of a, a guard or just to listen for sounds is the way they put it. But she heard heard the people being killed and she decided to go up to the house at one point and she saw Wojcik Frakowski uh, stumbling out of the house after he had been stabbed a number of times and shot. And uh, she looked him in the eye and said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, and that was pretty, pretty dramatic. But um, so she was an eyewitness. She was there, but she didn't participate in any of the uh, crimes, and she was granted immunity. She was initially charged with all seven counts of murder and made a deal with the DA that if she testified and told the truth and nothing but the truth, she'd be granted immunity. Her testimony was quite compelling. Yeah. So you thought the the whole helter skelter theory, the motive essentially, that that was uh, that was proven to you adequately by the uh, the prosecution, obviously. That was a possible crazy motive. The other was the fact that he wanted to be a rock and roll star. He wanted to be as popular as the Beatles. Part of the the other theory is that he. He committed these murders to instill fear into Terry Melcher to make him reconsider. None of those really make a whole lot of sense. And I didn't use, I don't think any of us really used the uh, theories of those motives in deciding the case. There was, there was plenty of uh, testimony and proof for us to convict all four defendants. Were you ever aware of any of the defendants looking over to you at the jury, either to intimidate or or gauge your reaction? Or did, did you try to not make eye contact with the defendants during the trial? No, it, no, it, it happened. Uh, Manson had a little game that he played where he would make eye contact with with the jury and he'd start with the first juror and, and kind of stare in, in a gaze and hold the gaze until uh, the juror broke it. Then he'd go to the next one and and I was number three and, and uh, he would just go right down the line. But he did that with people in, in the audience as well. It was kind of his silly little game. And mm. occasionally I would I would hold the gaze a little bit longer than most just to show him that I wasn't intimidated by him. And uh, 
Leslie Van Houten once looked at me and uh, sort of mouthed. She sort of opened her hands up and said, my life is your life. Mm. And, you know, that was uh, interesting. But It must have been so strange for you to have just come back from Vietnam and mm-hmm. to and to be placed in this this kind of madness back home in the states being in that war i mean did what you see here in the states did that have an impact on you or the thing i found weird about it is was during the whole peace love and dove kind of around the summer of love time in history where Hippies were nothing but flower child children, you know. And for a bunch of hippies living in a commune setting to somehow come up with the idea to kill people and uh, thinking that uh, if they killed rich people, they would be reincarnated as more beautiful people such as themselves was just something I'm able to quite grapple with. It just mm. never made any sense. And and the people they murdered were people they didn't even didn't know. Tell me about the deliberations. You know, we just sort of went at it uh, methodically, and and uh, after we chose a foreman, his name was Herman Tubick. We discussed the evidence and bring up things that. Uh, concerned us and go over the evidence as to each and every defendant and each count and finally reached a conclusion where we were ready to vote and, and return the verdict. So how do you feel today when you see people like uh, Corden Weekhold or Van Houten uh, come up for parole and, and yeah uh to be honest, I sort of see Leslie Van Houten differently than the other three defendants because she she wasn't involved in the first night at all. She wasn't even in the car. And uh, she was charged with those murders because um, she was charged with being a member of the conspiracy. And California law says that any member of a conspiracy is equally guilty of all crimes committed by their co-conspirators. So that's kind of what got her. But but um, realistically, she was only involved the second night when they killed Mr. and Mrs. LaBianca. And of the two of them, she was involved with uh, Mrs. LaBianca in the bedroom where she was killed. And the evidence of the uh, coroner in Los Angeles showed that the stab wounds that she inflicted were inflicted after death. And I actually had a little bit of a hang-up over over that one because I couldn't quite see how you convict someone of murder if they stabbed someone that was already dead. But yeah. And that was one of the points that we really discussed in the jury room. But... At the time that she was stabbing this lady numerous times, kind of in the lower part of her back, um, 
she had no idea this lady was dead. So the intent to kill her, we felt, was still there. But, you know, she's, I think she's the longest held female prisoner in California history. And she's, she's been a model prisoner for 50 years or more. And she's done things with her life that you wouldn't ever think possible of someone that's sentenced to prison. And she's right. been very helpful to other prisoners. So I I thought that she should be probably released at this point. And the parole board has found that she is suitable for parole three times. And um, so in any other case, she would have been released by now. But no governor in California wants to be the the governor that releases one of the Manson family. I've been a court reporter for 45 years. I've reported murder trials. I've seen people convicted of murder go into prison and get out of prison during my my career. And I think there's a there's a California law that says once a prisoner reaches old age, unless there's a compelling reason uh, not to release them, that they should be released. Anyway, not to go too much into that, but I do think at this point she should probably be released. I mean, she never, she didn't have a criminal history before the trial. She got wrapped up in the Manson family, and and uh, I've seen a lot worse in court. Yeah, but it was the Manson family. Piggybacking on your points about Van Houten <clears throat> and questioning her direct involvement, or was she a co-conspirator, or what have you? Was there similar discussion in terms of Manson, who who did not actually kill anyone, but obviously facilitated those events? Yes, the the thing that got Charlie. Uh, even though he didn't stab any of the victims, was the fact that he was he was the leader of of the cult or the family. It was his idea to do this. He instructed the people that did it to go do it. And it the same thing with the California conspiracy rule that any member of the conspiracy is equally guilty of the crimes as co-conspirators commit. So that's. That's uh, what convicted Charlie. And you you mentioned that you were you, you went into court reporting. Uh, was yeah. that a direct result of of this trial and your experience at the trial? Yeah, yeah, it was. There was one of our guards in the hotel. We had the entire sixth floor of the Ambassador Hotel, except for the entertainer's suite where Sammy Davis Jr. lived at the far end of the hall. But one of the guards was um, practicing one night on a court reporting machine, and we got to know these people, and I went and sat down and was talking and asked her about the machine and what was it, and she said, it's a court reporting machine. I'm studying to be a court reporter. And... Um, the two court reporters for the trial were both men, and uh, 
I was a little bit fascinated with what they were doing and how they were doing it, you know, writing down every word that was said in the courtroom. So anyway, after the trial, I looked into it. I used the GI Bill, and I went to a court reporting school in Los Angeles, and and uh, a year and a half later began my career as a court reporter. Wow. I actually took uh, Vince Bugliosi's deposition, the prosecutor, one time. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> so you, and, and, and this was a career you fought. I mean, this was your lifelong career, wasn't it? Yeah, 45 years. Wow. This is wow. my first year of uh, not working as a court reporter. Well, you know, I'm I'm fascinated by when you're a part of this history that is known the world over, uh, when you meet people or get to know people, they have to be flabbergasted when you reveal this to them. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, it's happened so many times. But yeah, most people can't believe it. And they either go, oh, wow, and not say anything else, maybe because they just don't want to get into it, or they have a million questions, you know. Mm. And it's hard, hard to really understand why 50 years later there's still interest in this case. And I, uh, early on after the trial, I just thought it was yesterday's paper, you know, but it just yeah. remained kind of on the burner forever. On the next episode of August 69, for 50 years, the media has been flooded with retrospectives and rehashes of the Helter Skelter saga but how much of it can still be found and felt in the Los Angeles of today. Scott Michaels, the owner of LA's Dearly Departed Tours, the writer and host of the popular documentary Six Degrees of Helter Skelter, and a technical consultant on Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, reveals the figures he's encountered over the years who have connections to these infamous crimes. You know, a smart person in prison keeps their mouth shut. The locations that still harbor a tactile sense of this sordid history. So you can kind of immerse yourself into it and at least see where things were. And why the myth of Helter Skelter continues to endure. Helter Skelter's nonsense. Tune in to the next episode of our August 69 series. Visit moviegeeksunited.net for more details.